Well, good morning, everyone. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim, and I'm one of the pastors here at Central Heights, and my privilege to continue our series called The Path to Glory this morning. We're going to be looking, uh, starting out of Luke chapter 22. So if you want to find your way there on your device or if you have a hard copy Bible with you, uh, Luke chapter 22 it will also be on the screen overhead. Starting in verse 14. And when the hour came, he, speaking of Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this. Some of you may be wondering why I have this box of aspirin on the table here with me, aren't you? You're thinking, does the guy have a headache? Actually, it fits into just a, a little bit of a story I want to tell you this morning. In 1999, uh, Wall Street Journal reported in a big way, Bayer is removing the cotton from its aspirin bottles. And uh, Bayer didn't think it was a big deal. Uh, that wad of fluff that prevented people with headaches from getting to their pills really quickly uh, had no longer served its purpose as far as they were concerned. And this really wasn't worth mentioning, but when the Wall Street Journal picked up on it, they thought this was real news. And they went out and interviewed people, and uh, they talked to Some people weren't all that happy about it. Some people thought that the cotton inside the, ball, uh, the bottle um, helped the pills retain their potency. Uh, some thought, well, how are they going to keep moisture out of the bottle now with the pills? Because surely that's what the cotton is in the bottle for, right? To keep, you know, absorb any extra moisture. I mean, that's what I thought. I'll be honest with you. That's what I thought. That has nothing to do with why the cotton was in the bottle. The cotton was in the bottle because it was to stabilize the pills so that in transit, shaking around, they wouldn't sort of self-destruct each other. That was the only reason for it. They made a change in the 1980s that coated the pills in this micro-coating that no longer made it necessary. But they didn't actually take the cotton out of the bottle until the late 90s. Why? Because they'd just been doing it all that time. So they kept on doing it. One of the spokespersons for Bayer said, it was tradition. We'd always been doing it, so we kept on doing it. It was tradition that kept the cotton in the bottle. So I think this morning, as we uh, look at what we're talking about today, it is a really good thing to evaluate why do we do the things that we do? And given advances in technology and, and society, does it still make sense to do those things? Like, is there still a reason? I think it's great. I think it's important to ask those questions throughout life, but I think it's Especially important when it comes to faith. Why are we doing the things that we are doing and do they still make sense? So at Central Heights and in mainline Christianity, there are two, you can call them traditions, that are typically carried out on an ongoing basis in the church. One is called baptism, and we saw that right here this morning. 
It was given as an ordinance by Jesus that when someone committed their life to Christ to be a follower, they were to be baptized. And that signified, amongst so many other things, but in simplicity, that when they go under the water, it's like they've died to their old life. When they come out of the water, it's like they're rising to the new person, which is in fact true of them. It's a new reality that when a person commits their life to Jesus Christ, he makes you what you weren't previously. You become a new person in Jesus Christ with a new present and a new future. The other tradition or ordinance that Jesus gave us is called the Lord's Supper, communion, other names. We call it the Lord's Supper here. And it's something that we participate in every first Sunday of the month, which happens to be today. So whether you're a guest this morning that's never heard or the Lord's Supper, whether you're a grade sixer and they never did it in kids' church and this is your first time, or whether you've been going to church for a long time and you've always wondered, why do we do this? Does it still make sense? Or whether you would just like to go deeper with it, I think all of us can benefit from the passage of Scripture and the scriptural study that we are going to do this morning. I'll give you my premise right off the bat. So I won't hide what I think about it. My premise is that the Lord's Supper is a life-giving tradition. It's a life-giving tradition. It is a complete meal initiated by Jesus, repeated by his followers. It is rich in history and meaning. And in the Lord's Supper, it resets our affections. It nourishes our soul. And it is a place where by faith we can actually expect to meet with Jesus. And I'd like to pray for us before we begin this journey. Would you join me? God, we come before you this morning. We thank you, Lord, for what we've already experienced here as we've gathered together to be able to sing songs of worship. Lord, to uh, see with our eyes the testimony of someone saying yes to Jesus and demonstrating that in the waters of baptism and the beauty of family and friends supporting that, Lord. And now, God, we're just, um, we're excited to look at your word and what you want to teach us. I ask you, Lord, I wouldn't get in the way, but that your Holy Spirit would just move through me and through your word, Lord. And uh, for each one of us where we're at, would you please speak your living truth to us today in Jesus' precious holy name. The Lord's Supper is a complete meal initiated by Jesus. So in Luke chapter 22, we see the words there that Jesus says about what he's about to do. And, and know that this takes place on Jesus' path to glory. And that path to glory is the path to Jesus' death and resurrection. That is the ultimate glory that's demonstrated through Jesus' life. That he's gonna die, but death is not gonna hold him. He's gonna rise from the dead. And it's in that final week, and in fact, in the final hours, that Jesus initiates what we see here and says to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. Now think about that. Jesus knows what's going to take place in the next few hours. He knows that he's going to go to the cross. He knows that he's not just going to confront Rome and the religious leaders. He's going to be confronting sin He's going to be confronting death. He's going to be confronting Satan. And with all that darkness looming in the background, he says, I earnestly desire to eat this meal with you. Must be important. Has to be important. 
And we see that after Jesus did in fact go to the cross, how he died, how he rose from the dead, how he reappeared to his disciples and then ascended to the right hand of the Father and poured out his Holy Spirit, that soon after the followers of Jesus continued, they repeated this ordinance, this Lord's Supper that Jesus gave to them. When we read in Luke chapter 22, it talks about how Jesus, uh, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and gave it to him. This is uh, Luke's uh, consistent language when he's referring to the Lord's Supper. And so Luke is also the person who wrote about the early church. And so he writes what we call the book of Acts in, in the New Testament Bible. And there, very soon after the Holy Spirit is poured out on a bunch of people, they become followers of Jesus. We read in Acts chapter, 20, Acts chapter 2 what they do. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship that word is koinonia, which can also be translated communion. We're going to come back to that at some point. So to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That word breaking of bread, it could, it, it could be just referred to the meal, but Luke is, is seeming to indicate that it meant exactly what Jesus instituted with his disciples. This meal that he gave them. And the breaking of bread, of course, because, was because, you know, their bread... Um, their bread had to be broken. They didn't have these nice serrated edges that you can get at the P&E, so you can cut them up into nice little clumps. I, uh, my wife and I bought a, a serrated uh, knife at the P&E like 30 years ago. They gave you a life, lifetime guarantee. 15 years later, we go to the P&E. Same guys there. Yeah, get a new knife, serrated edge, you can cut the bread. Well, it wasn't that way for them in the first century. They had to break their bread. And so Jesus breaks the bread, passes it. Somebody else breaks the bread. And that breaking, of course, becomes symbolic of what happened to Jesus' body, how it was broken for us. But the New Testament church, they begin to repeat this ordinance that Jesus gave them. We see it in Acts chapter 2 there, referred to as the breaking of bread. You read on in Acts chapter 20, and as Paul is meeting there uh, and, and preaching, he's, he's preaching a long time, so don't give me a hard time ever. He preached into midnight, and it was so long, one of the guys fell asleep, dead, and Paul revived him. So all, but that's not the point of this passage. In, in, in um, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. And so if you look at what we know of church history, it seems like they broke bread on a regular basis, like almost daily at the beginning. And then gradually it, it transitioned into every uh, first day of the week, which would have been a Sunday for them, the day of resurrection. They would do this. And that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Jesus initiated. Jesus' followers then repeat this, this Lord's Supper that he has given to them. The Lord's Supper is also rich in history and meaning. So let's remember it's during the Passover that Jesus has this meal with his disciples. In fact, it's set up as a Passover meal. So the Lord's Supper is connected to 15 years ago, a celebration meal that happened, referred to as the Passover. In case you're not familiar with the history, uh, back, in, back in that time, the nation of Israel, who were called to be God's people, had been in slavery under Egypt for 430 years. That's a long time, isn't it? 430 years. How old are you? 
You don't have to tell me. Some of you are older than 20. I can see it. I can just see it. Some of you are older than 40. Some of you are older than 60. Some of you might be older than 80. And we might be thinking, wow, that's a long time. Like, that's old. Our country, just a little while ago, turned 150 years old. And we go, wow, amazing. Canada, like 150 years of history. That's a long time. And think of all the changes in, uh, uh, of how our world has worked in that 150-year period. Well, the nation of Israel was under slavery for 430 years. More than, you know, almost three times the length of the existence of our nation, Canada, this people group existed in slavery. So if you were there at the time, your, your dad would have been a slave, your, your grandfather would have been a slave, your great-grandfather a slave, a slave, and it just goes generationally, generationally, generationally. That's all you knew. And the people cried out to God, and then in God's timing, God acts. He calls a man named Moses, and together with his brother Aaron, he sends them to the ruler of that day, Pharaoh, and they ask the Pharaoh, ask the Pharaoh to let them go. Of course, he won't. And so God begins to uh, squeeze him a little bit with one plague and then another and then another and the plagues get worse. And then you think, man, he's got to let them go. And he, he, Pharaoh starts to, you know, he starts to, to give in a little bit, but then he takes it back. And so you have these series of plagues, the sixth plague, the seventh plague, eighth plague, ninth plague. And then God says to Moses and to the children of Israel, this will be the last one. There's one more coming the 10th plague, it's going to be a plague of death. In judgment, I'm going to come across the land, I'm going to smite it with darkness, and every firstborn, man and animal, is going to be dead when I'm done. But he says, for those who will believe in me, put their trust in me, I want you to take an unblemished lamb, and on this night, I want you to kill it, I want you to roast it over a fire, and I want you to take its blood and I want you to smear it on the doorpost, the frames of your door. And when, when, the, uh, when death comes over, it will see that and it will pass over. And you will live. And that's what happens on that night. The most eerie night I think we could ever imagine. A, a darkness, it says, that could be felt. And you can imagine the neighborhoods, the screams that would start to arise as people wake up and, or, or check on their kids and realize that one of their children is dead and it's going from house to house to house. And Pharaoh says, I'll let you go. And it's on that night, that Passover night, that becomes the last plague, the thing that allows Israel to be set free. And they, they, they leave, you know, over a million people leave free. Liberation. An exodus. And every year now, God instructs His people, I want you to celebrate. I want you to celebrate your freedom. And if you've ever talked to someone who's been an, an immigrant from a country where he's been under oppression, and then to find freedom, you, 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 you just, you're almost overwhelmed. And it makes you emotional to hear the emotion in their voices and the appreciation. And the depth that they feel to have once been in, in oppression and now to be free. So every year they were to celebrate that. And as the people, fathers, would remind their children who maybe hadn't been there, were born after the fact, to remind them that why are we celebrating this, 
this night? Why, why are we eating this Passover? And they would tell the story, and by doing so, everybody re-enters into that story that this is also part of your story as part of a child of Israel, rich in meaning, ri- rich in history. But there's more to the backstory of what's going on here, and it has to do with, with food and a meal. Um, Right from the beginning, food is given as a gift to God's people. Adam and Eve, you know, you can, you can go and you can eat. And they were to eat, in a sense, in obedience and gratitude and, and under the lordship of God. And meal, if you, if you study it through the scriptures, is, is, is a very important thing with God. And I've, personally, I've found this to be very encouraging because sometimes I've wondered, why do I care about eating so much? Why do I love a good meal? I, I don't, maybe you're like that, maybe not. Some people say I eat to live or I live to eat. It's I live to eat. That's what I'm accused of. And yeah, I say I, for me it's both. But if you ask me of holidays that we've taken as a family sometimes, and I'll get asked the question, do you remember that holiday, what we did on it? And I'll say, well, not really, but I can remember 1997, that holiday, going to Ruth's Chris for their steak. And they, 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 they cook it at 1,800 degrees and they serve it on a plate that's like 700 degrees. So your steak keeps cooking while you're eating it. And the vegetables and the potatoes, they're done perfectly. The dessert is done perfectly. This used to annoy my wife like crazy. Like, can't you remember something else about our holidays? Do you remember what happened in 1995 when we were on... Um, the uh, south coast of California around Carlsbad. Yeah, well, a little bit. I know we went body surfing. We spent time in the ocean. But I remember this meal <laughs> at the Shard House and these amazing coconut prawns I had. Like they were so delicious. And we, and we're, we had this beautiful window overlooking the ocean. And, and like I get these, what's, like, what's wrong with you, Tim? Like wha- can't you think about, some, can't something more be more important to you than the meal you had on your holiday? What I especially love about those two, they were both gifts. And so when it's free and it's good, like... <laughs> Like, come on, why wouldn't you remember that, right? But I could go on, literally. I could probably keep us going for a long time. But I'll just mention a couple more, because that's not why you came here this morning. But I can remember the Pacifica, uh, Pacifica restaurant in Palm Springs, and the, the, I think they even called it Canadian maple syrup or brown sugar glaze on it. And it's just mouth-watering. It, it's delicious. I'd love to take each one of you to Victoria to the Blue Fox restaurant for breakfast. We could stand in line and we could go for the, the orange uh, French toast that they make. See, it's, a, it's just amazing. You've got to experience that. What is it? Why are meals so important? Well, they're important in the Bible. And we find from the very beginning that relationship with God was broken off in the act of eating. See that? The relationship with God was broken in the act of eating. And the relationship with God will be restored around a meal. So after the children of Israel have been freed from Egypt and they, God takes them through the Red Sea, this amazing miracle, and then he takes them to Mount Sinai, and there God is going to reveal himself and he's going to um, show the, this nation that he's called out, how they are going to live with him in relationship. And God makes a covenant with his people, 
That is like a commitment. This is what I'm committing to you. This is what I want you to do in commitment to me. And so we read in um, Exodus chapter 24 how Moses, where previously people weren't supposed to go up on the mountain, now Moses can go up on the mountain with others. He brings Aaron and his sons, and he brings 70 elders of Israel. And it says they've been sprinkled with blood. The covenant is being confirmed. They go up on the mountain, and what do they do? They eat and drink with God. You see, when two parties were committing themselves to one another, this is what happened. Often there was, their blood was shed, an animal was killed, and then the animal was cooked. And then as part of the celebration of commitment to one another, they would sit and they would eat and they would drink. This is in the background. This is in the backstory of what's going on in a Passover meal that Jesus is now celebrating with his disciples, but transforming. A third thing to this in the backstory is that it's not just an individual covenant, but it's about community, it's about family. And so although Moses and the leaders are reaffirming this covenant, the covenant is truly a covenant of community. It's a covenant with a whole people group. It's not just individuals with God, it's a people group with God. So that how they relate to one another matters in their relationship with God. And so in God's covenant-keeping rules, what is called the law, there are all kinds of stipulations as as to how they are to treat one another with honor, respect. You don't lend money and charge interest to one another because you're like a community, a covenant community that's like family. There's property rights. There's, there's ways to treat the poor. So you don't, if you have fields in an agricultural economy, you don't strip it dry. You leave the edges. You leave places for, for the poor to come and be fed. You look after one another because you're a community covenant. We see that so illustrated not that long after when after Lo- Moses passes on the leadership to Joshua and they're going to they're going to move into the promised land and take it and they cross the Jordan River they take the city of Jericho and it all looks great and then they go to take this little city of Ai and they are defeated. And Joshua can't figure it out and God says you have someone in your community your covenant community who's broken what I've asked you to do. See, they weren't supposed to take any devoted things from Jericho. One person did that, and it affected the whole people of Israel. That's in the backstory. The covenant is not just with individuals. It's a community. It's a family. And fourthly, in the backstory, is all about the forgiveness of sins. So blood was shed to enter into the covenant and blood will be shed on an ongoing basis through sacrifice for sacrifice of sin. And we see that especially highlighted on the one day of the year called the Day of Atonement. When a lamb is slain, blood is shed for the sins of the whole nation as the priest lays his hands on the animal. Forgiveness, it's all there. It's all there. And now Jesus takes this on this night shortly before he is going to die and he's going to show how he is the fulfillment of so much of what has been written behind him in the Old Testament and how he's going to transform it through his life, his death, and his resurrection. If you were to look at this like a menu, we would call this such an amazing complete meal. 
For example, there's Passover, speaks of deliverance. Well, that's, that's now ultimately going to be fulfilled and happen in Jesus Christ. See, Jesus will come not just to deliver from a, an oppressive ruler. He's going to come and deliver from Satan, sin, and death. They will be truly free, even if they're under uh, political oppression, they will be truly free from within. Jesus is coming, and what he's going to do is inaugurating a new covenant. See, the old covenant was good. It, it made a provision for the people of God to be in relationship with God, but it didn't work so much because the people kept failing, and so Jesus is inaugurating something new, something better, we are told in the book of Hebrews, something with better promises. They will stand before God because of Jesus as right with God. Jesus will be their perfection. They will now be able to come into God's presence, any person, at any time, because of what Jesus will do for them. They have free access into the presence of the most holy God. I mean, if you were a, an Old Testament Jew, this would be unthinkable. But this is what Jesus is inaugurating as new covenant, a new relationship with God. Jesus is inaugurating a new community. There were lines around the, the Jewish family that you, ha you had to become a Jew in a sense. You had to be a proselyte to become a Jew in order to relate with God the way that, the way that they did. Now through what Jesus is doing, there will be no distinction. Jew, Gentile, distinction is gone. Slave, um, slave, slave owner, that distinction will be gone. Male, female, it's all gone. All have free access, free, uh, they can freely approach God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the bread, the bread that Jesus broke and the bread that the followers of Jesus would continue to break illustrated that he says because there is one bread we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread see we're many we're many in personality we're we're many in nationality all those things but because of jesus christ what he's done his new covenant we are all one family in jesus christ so all those who are followers by faith in Jesus in the past, those of us in the present, and those who are yet to come are all one in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. And then there's a forgiveness of sins. When Matthew records this event in the Matthew chapter 26, Jesus talks about, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus appeared on earth and started his ministry, John the Baptist said and proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God, that had all kinds of Old Testament freight with it. Behold, the Lamb of God, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin, the sins of the world. Forgiveness of sins. Jesus will offer himself up. This is God who's come in human flesh, will himself offer himself up as the perfect, sinless sacrifice, the unblemished lamb, and will die once and for all for the sins of his people so they will no longer ever have to sacrifice again. And because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice, they will reside in God's presence as completely washed clean and free, forgiven. Amazing.
but there's more. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in the verses that talk about the Lord's Supper as it celebrate. At the very end of that, after Paul tells them to eat the bread and drink the cup, which we will do later, Paul says to them, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, when we eat this meal, Jesus is saying, I've inaugurated my kingdom, but its fullness is coming. And one day, he has said to his disciples, we will eat it, and we'll eat and drink in its, the king, when the kingdoms come in its fullness. And forever we will dwell in the presence of God. There'll be no need for sun or moon because his presence will be among us and his light will shine, the glory of God, and we will be with him in celebration, eating and drinking with God. This is our hope. This is the complete meal. This is the fulfillment of the Passover and its complete transformation that occurs through Jesus Christ. No wonder, he said, I earnestly desire to eat this with you. It's rich in history. It's rich in meaning. So that when we take this Lord's Supper, it, autumn, it just naturally becomes something that resets our affections. I don't know about you, but just thinking about this and, and going through some of these things again and what Jesus has done for us, my, my heart is again stirred with affection. For Jesus Christ, my, my Lord and Savior. For many uh, years in the, in, the, in the early church, the, the Lord's Supper was referred to much more than the Lord's Supper as the Eucharist. That word in Greek simply means thanksgiving. Remember, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks. That, that word Eucharist is in there. Broke it and gave it. Every time we take the Lord's Supper and we think about all that Jesus has done for us, our hearts, the affections of our hearts are reset to gratitude because we live in a world where it's so easy to think that we're entitled. We're entitled, you know, to our fast food being ready when we want it. We're entitled to our text message being sent, you know, within six seconds after I send it to you. You know, we're entitled to this and that. When we take the Lord's Supper, Supper we're reminded we're not entitled to anything. And yet we've received so much as a gift. Oh, how can I be anything but grateful, Lord? How can I not give thanks to you? Jesus took the bread and gave thanks. It resets our affections. And I believe it also nourishes our soul. So when you look at Luke's gospel in, in Luke chapter 22, earlier he's written about the feeding of the 5,000. He uses the exact same words. So Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and distributed it. John also writes about the feeding of the 5,000 in his gospel. And after that, John records something that the other gospel writers don't. He records this dialogue with the religious leaders of his day. And they actually start to get upset with Jesus because Jesus won't be their political puppet. They want him to be king so that he'll do for them what they want him to do. But Jesus knows he needs to rule over their lives so they'll be truly satisfied. They need to bring themselves um, under him. So he uses the bread language, bread and, and wine language. He says to them in John chapter 6, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus says, I'm going to give my flesh. I'm going to die for you. 
John Mark Homer, he's a pastor in Bridgetown in Portland, said something that stuck with me. He said, all of us are alive today because, because of death. What he means by that is the, the, the meat that you ate, yes, ate yesterday had to be killed in order for you to eat it. The plant that you ate yesterday, in a sense, is, had to be dead in order for you to eat it. And it's that death that allows you to keep on living. How much more tr is it true of us that the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection is that which allows us to truly live. I give my body for you, Jesus said. I give my blood for you. Verse 53 in John 6, he goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. These were certainly confusing words to people who are taking it literally. No doubt Jesus is speaking metaphorically. That every time when we, when we come in a Lord's Supper and we, in a sense, feast on Him by thinking about and worship, worshiping Him and giving gratitude for all that His body broken for us and all that His blood shed for us means for us, it's in that way that our souls become nourished. All I have and all I want and all I need, where is it found? In you, Jesus. In you. The Lord's Supper is a life-giving tradition. It is complete meal initiated by Jesus and repeated by his followers. It is rich in history and meaning. It resets our affections and nourishes our souls. Lastly, it is a place where by faith we can expect to meet Jesus. A couple of chapters later, after Luke chapter 22, Jesus has died, he's risen from the dead, and there's these two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem. They're all downtrodden, they're upset because they saw Jesus die, and they knew he was dead, and they think that's the end of it. They had hoped he was the hope of Israel. You know, he's gonna, he's gonna set them free. Jesus pulls up alongside of them, they don't recognize him, and he begins to tell them about the suffering Messiah that didn't this have to be the way that it was? And then when they compel him to stay, it says that he broke bread with them. And when he did so, their eyes were opened. It was as they broke bread, it was as they had a meal with him, that their eyes were opened. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, it talks about this cup that we take and the bread that we eat. It says, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That word participation, again, is koinonia, communion. So as we partake in this, it is not, it's not like the bread and the cup, the, the juice become the actual body and blood of Jesus. We don't believe that. It's more than a symbol, though, it's a place where we have the opportunity to meet with Jesus, to be reunited with Him, to re-fellowship with Him, to experience, to experience Him at His table called the Lord's Supper. One of my favorite verses that remind me of this is um, in Revelation chapter 3 because I think it gives so much hope to any one of us here 
Um, whether we feel like we're really close to God or whether we feel like we're far away from him. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to the Laodicean church at one point. And it's a church that has gotten into this mindset where they think, we don't need God. Like, we're doing pretty good. Thank you, God. You know, we're affluent. Uh, we can take care of ourselves. We had an earthquake and we built, we had an earthquake and we rebuilt the city ourselves. We didn't even need Rome's help. That's the kind of people they were. We don't need you. Jesus said, you don't know. You're blind. You're naked. You're poor. And you'd think he would just abandon these people. But no, he says, behold, I come. I stand at the door. I knock. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. I just want you to turn. I just want you to get aligned rightly. Reset your affections. Reset you know, yourself to the truth. I'm standing at the door. I'm knocking. And what does he say? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. And what are they going to do? What are they going to do? They're going to eat together. We're going to have communion. We're going to spend time together. You're going to know me. I'm going to know you. This is the invitation. This is the Lord's Supper. And as we take, we can see that it, it touches what we call the good news of Jesus Christ from the beginning to the end. From the beginning when God gave food that was good and to be eaten with gratitude. Flowing through his people who he made a covenant with around a meal. To Jesus, who before his death eats a meal with his disciples and, and lets them know that his body will be like bread that they're going to eat, his his blood will be like the cup that they're going to partake of. Flowing into the new church after he's risen from the dead as they continue to participate in it, knowing that it's taken care of their past, it empowers them for the present, but also gives them great hope for the future that is yet to come when they'll eat in a banquet with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the Lord's Supper that we are invited to participate in this morning.